Hello, hello to all my wonderful listeners out there. I just wanted to take a second to let you know about my new Patreon page. Now, what is Patreon, you might ask? Well, it is a subscription platform that makes it easy for you to support your favorite creators, and in this case, your favorite true crime podcast. So to check out our Patreon, please click the link in our episode description or in the bio of our Instagram account at bitchicantpod. Caution, this podcast contains adult language, sexual themes, and depictions of violence that some may find triggering. This podcast and its hosts are not responsible for the accuracy of the material presented, as it is strictly based on our own limited research and personal opinions. The information presented is not to be confused with actual investigative files pertaining to the cases or official court and or law enforcement records and transcripts. What's going on, guys? Thank you for tuning into the podcast again. I really appreciate you guys for being my loyal listeners. Um, I want to shout out everyone who has been sharing my story, including my husband, who has been posting it on his story uh, after I told him, um, sir why aren't you posting my shit on your story? Uh, <laughs> thank you. Uh, also shout out to all of my, just everyone that's just been giving me feedback, the people, the listeners who have been giving me show suggestions. Thank you for that. I have a few episodes coming up that are listener suggestions. They are already ready, locked and loaded and ready to go. So thank you guys for that. Um, also y'all, I am just super excited about these little mini episodes that have been coming out. So thank you guys for the love you've been giving me for those. And also y'all, Send suggestions, anything ridiculous, noteworthy, over the top, doesn't matter how long it is, the article, anything you see, a headline that you're like, bruh, put this on there. I'll put it on there. The mini episodes is very like Outback Steakhouse, no rules, just right. The longer full full length episodes, I need a little bit more to go on. So I need a little bit more of a substantial case to discuss. But y'all, thank you for tuning in. We're diving into today's show, which is obviously off the rails. So today's show is about audacity, betrayal, and what happens when a dangerous person becomes addicted to getting whatever they want, whenever they want it no matter the cost. So y'all sit back, relax, and let's dive into today's motherfucking show because you already know we are 20 plus episodes into this bitch and I still just can't. Okay, so on October 30th of 1948, in a hospital room in a southern town along the Bible Belt, a baby girl named Barbara was born to her parents, and they live in Durham, North Carolina. By the way, this makes her a Scorpio, so again, another Scorpio, another crime. I'm seeing a correlation here, but I digress. So this little girl is raised by extremely strict, extremely religious, Bible-banging-ass parents. Now, her parents are pretty well-off. Not rich, but well-off, so she has a good life. It's regimented and controlled as fuck, but it's good. So baby girl Barb grows up to be this nerdy, angsty teen who's the epitome of the lanky, glasses-wearing overachiever with great grades. So she graduates high school in the late 1960s, and this is around the time when she goes all princess diaries on us and cuts her hair, bleaches it blonde, and learns how to dress just in time to start college. 
So we have our ex-nerd, current baddie, Miss Barb. She's in college. She's trying to make new friends and shit. And this is when her roommate is like, bitch, you should go on a double date with me and my man. My man has a friend for you. And Barb is like, say less, bitch. Like, I'm down. So Barb meets up with her roommate and her roommate's boyfriend. And her roommate's boyfriend brings his friend who is named Larry Ford. So Larry is a nice guy who's the same. He's the same age as Barbara. So they're around 19 or 20 years old right now. And Larry's your typical Southern guy. He was from a working class family uh, who was very Christian and religious as well. So he and Barb kind of connected on that level. And like, you know, they understood each other from that perspective. So they're like, sure, this is a match. Like, maybe we should hang out more. As she got to know uh, Larry more, she learned that he had dreams of becoming a teacher. So they're in school together. They're dating. Time goes by and Larry's just like, I'm not into it. So he, you know, very politely decides to, you know, in in a nice way, break up with her. He pulls the, you know, it's not you, it's me. So this is when Barb has a full-on fucking meltdown. Like, she's back in her dorm room, screaming, crying, moaning, this, like, guttural, animal-like noise. She's going absolutely fucking bonkers. And it was so bad that her roommate called her parents. And so her parents come, and they're like, bruh, what the fuck is going on? So they actually admitted her into a hospital because they're like, whoa, like, she's losing it. So I don't know how long she was gone. It doesn't specify. I don't think she was gone very long. Maybe, maybe a week. She gets out of the hospital and almost immediately Larry takes her back. And then within a, of just a week or two, maybe like three weeks, Barb is pregnant, which is fucking wild. So... Being the religious, uh, you know, religious raised 20-year-olds that they were living in the South, Larry thought the right thing to do was to marry Barb. So he did. Now, since they didn't have a place to live and being college kids, they move into Larry's parents' double-wide trailer. Now, bougie Barb is in there looking around this trailer like Nene Leake saying, ooh, child, the ghetto. Like, she was more used to a stainless steel life, and Larry's parents were given, you know, white refrigerator vibes. So it was just a very stark and sudden change for bougie Barb, who, you know, went from baddie to all of a sudden, like, knocked up teen in a fucking double wide trailer. So Barb drops out of school in anticipation of taking care of this baby that's on the way. Um, so she stayed at home in the trailer with Larry's parents and siblings while Larry went to school to finish his degree. Now, allegedly, Barb was standoffish with her in-laws and had this weird-ass habit of being freakishly affectionate and sexual with Larry in front of them, like making out and groping him and shit, which is just like extreme levels of fucking cringe. Well, time goes on, and in December of the next year, um, in 1968, their son, Brian, was born. Well, you know, they are raising the baby, and two years goes by. He's a toddler. And in 1970, this is when Larry graduated from college and joined the Marine Reserves. Mind you, Barb and the baby are still living with his family. Now, while he was away at boot camp, Barbara would leave his parents with the baby and go out and, like, turn up. And they had a suspicion that she was having an affair. But they couldn't prove it, and they were, you know, very Christian. So they're like, let's not confront her about it. It's our son's wife. Uh, So they just kind of left it alone and just filed, bookmarked that shit for later. Well, in the fall of this year, Larry is back and he wants to start teaching, but he's already passed, you know, the semester start date. So he gets a job at Sears and Barb had been working as a teller at a local bank. 
Well, at this bank, everyone loved Barb until she got too comfortable and started talking talking reckless and like super sexual around everyone at work and making everybody really uncomfortable. Well, everybody, when I say everyone, I mean the, the women she made uncomfortable. The men were about that life. So it was actually the women employees who blew the whistle on her and reported her for being, you know, having this nasty ass mouth at work. Um, they also said she loved to flirt with the male customers. So we're going to fast forward. Time is still going on. We are now in 1973. It's just been a couple years. She's still been at the bank. The baby's growing. Like nothing crazy is happening. She's just, you know, continuing to live her life the same way. So we're in 1973 and Barbara is having a full on affair. Mm Mm-hmm. In plain sight. That's right, y'all. Barb started having an affair with a customer of the fucking bank, and it was such common knowledge that all of her coworkers knew about it. Now, at one point, Larry suspected something was up, and he even got an anonymous phone call from someone tipping him off, like, you know where your wife's at? Tipping him off about, you know, her infidelity. But he shrugged it off, and him and Barb decided to buy a new house together. (laughs) Now... It's very clear that our boy Larry is drowning in denial river, y'all. He is just not okay. He doesn't want to see what's happening right in front of his eyes. Well, around this time in the year, it's fall now, Barbara starts a new affair with a new customer who is an older man. And time's going on, going by while she's, you know, fucking this guy and fucking her husband. Because by December, that was fall, by December, Barb announces hey, I'm pregnant. Larry could not be more excited. They announced it to the family. And by summer, uh, the, the summer of the, you know, the next year, they moved through the new year. And summer of 1974, their second son, Jason, is born. This is also when Barb says, fuck that shit, and gets her tubes tied and uh, has a tubal ligation. Now, I don't blame her because number one, she's done having babies, uh, which totally her choice. I love that for her. But if I was out there in them streets like Barb was, I would tie my shit up too. And I have a feeling, and this is just me throwing my opinion on here, which I try to avoid doing, but (laughs) let's be real. Um, That if she was having an affair with someone in the fall and then find out she was pregnant in December, I'm sure that scared the shit out of her. Like, ooh, shit, who's my baby's daddy? And I don't think she wanted that anymore. I think she wanted to continue having her affairs and did not want to have to speculate about who her baby daddy was. But anyways, she, they have a new baby, so now they have two children. And by that fall, right, she drops the baby in the summer. By fall... Barb is in another affair with a new man who was another customer at the bank. Now, Larry is hearing these rumors about his wife, but he's clearly just compartmentalized it all and is refusing to address it. So by November of this year, Barb and and Larry are not getting along. She is pulled away from him completely. And then she decides that she wants to move out. So her and the babies move out and she gets her own apartment. And this is when Larry files for legal separation. Now, while Larry was working through the details of the separation, he started to go through their finances, and he found a bunch of unpaid unpaid bills and found out that Barb had been maxing out the credit cards that they had together. So, you know, from a bird's eye view, looking at at the way she's hopping from man to man to man, it's giving sex addiction. I'm obviously not a fucking therapist to diagnose this shit. But in addition to that addiction, she also had an addiction to shopping. So she was out there making it rain with Larry's money. Meanwhile, they're separated and like it's and she's having an affairs, having affairs and they have children that need like 
it's just a lot. So that was November. So within a few weeks uh, of that, Barbara dumps that customer that she was having the affair with, you know, while she's living in her in her new apartment with just the kids, and she starts dating a coworker from the bank. This relationship was so open that everybody knew about it, and it was just like an open, common knowledge thing. Well, by Christmas of that same year, this guy dumps her. And so Barb is embarrassed. I don't think the breakup went well. So she quits her job at the bank, possibly out of embarrassment. And she decides that she misses Larry. And <laughs> she finally wants to let him see the kids that she's been keeping from him this, this whole time. She wasn't even letting him like spend time with his, spend time with his damn children. So of course, Larry takes her back. And in an attempt to keep his family together, he's like, let's just, let's, let's just make this happen, which I'm just shaking my head. So, th- so this is when Barb gets another job, but it's a secretarial job working for a company. Um, and she is a secretary directly reporting to the president of the company. So, you know, we know our girl Barb at this point. We know her literally almost immediately. She starts having an affair with him, with the president. So everything was going great until the president of the company's wife found out and demanded that he fire Barb and drop his side chick. And so he did. He was like, listen, I'm not trying to pay for this divorce, especially if he's the president of the company. He's making money. He's like, I am not going through all this for Barb. I could get a new, quieter, less sloppy, you know, uh, side chick and not have to deal with this divorce. So he dumps Barb and fires Barb. So she's once again unemployed and dejected by another uh, side dick that she had going on. So financially, things are falling apart for the family. They are getting super super behind on everything, her and Larry. So out of desperation and delusion, she does what everyone does when they don't know what else to do with their life. She decides to get her real estate license. (laughs) Trust me, I would know. Uh, So she takes this job working under this realtor woman who she admired, but she never closed any fucking transactions, didn't do shit, and she ended up quitting again. Well, around this time, Barb, unemployed per usual, she tells Larry that she feels like someone is following her and like stalking her and she doesn't feel safe. So she wants to get a gun. And Larry's on board with this, but he doesn't, you know, he's dragging his feet. He's like, okay, whatever. So he's like, fine, we'll get get you one whenever we get one. Barb doesn't want to wait. So she ends up charming one of her coworkers into going with her to pick out her very own Beretta. So she gets her own gun. Exciting. Well, a few days later, on March 22nd, 1978, Barbara calls for an ambulance to come to her house because her husband has accidentally shot himself. Now the cops get there and they see Larry laying in bed with a sheet covering him and he's covered with blood. He is officially declared dead on the scene at the age of 29. Now, Larry is positioned as if he was about to get out of the bed, and there is a gun laying on the floor along with a clip for the gun. They're laying on the floor next to Larry's body. Now, according to Barb, Larry injured himself in Taekwondo, by the way, he was taking Taekwondo classes, uh, and he was having issues with his back and he couldn't sleep, so she decided to let him have the bed, and she took the couch. Well, while she's laying there on the couch, you know, innocently sleeping, she heard a loud noise, and she ran into the bedroom and found him there, and he'd been shot to death. Now, police believe her version of events and file the report as an accidental death. Sidebar, what I wouldn't have given to have been 
uh, a white woman during that time because police believed everything you told them. I mean, white men too, but I mean, I can't even tell you the number. I mean, not even during that time. <laughs> Let's be real, during any time. Uh, I can't even tell you the number of stories that I have told on this podcast that have stemmed from a white woman just presenting information to police and the police being like, perfect, yes, girl. No more questions asked. Yes. So anyways... Police believe her version of events, and they file the report as an accidental death. Well, by the time the detective arrives to, you know, the next day, which is wild, the detective comes the next day to, like, really look into the scene of what happened. The body has already been taken to the morgue, and Barbara had already removed and replaced the sheets, cleaned the bedroom. So Barbara was pushing for a funeral to happen the next day, like, the following day. So, like, one day after, you know, the detective came, she's like, I'm... We're having the funeral. And, like, she really wanted this man in the ground ASAP, like, stat. Now, his family was begging her to push it out just a little so that they had time to invite their extended family who knew and loved Larry. And she's like, nah, fuck that shit in the click you claim. The funeral's happening. Like, take it or leave it. The, um, the police also did not want to, did not want to, uh, did not plan, sorry, to perform an autopsy because it, the death was ruled as accidental. Now, the only thing they were able to check on the body was, you know, they were able to check for gunpowder residue on Larry's hands, which they could not find. The gunpowder residue would have been indicative of him firing a gun, but they couldn't find any. Well, I guess at the funeral that happened within first 48, <laughs> literally, Barb was acting bizarre as fuck. Like, she would go from being super happy, super happy hostess, to crying hysterically and over the top and just being, you know... I guess acting like you, you should when your husband dies. So she was just all over the place. And I guess this rumor had started. And this rumor was that Larry had been unhappy and Larry had killed himself. So Barb uh, confronted the people that were spreading the rumor at the funeral and was like, skirt, first of all, ho, that is now what happened. Get to keep my, na my man's name out your mouth. Um, that's now what happened. He accidentally killed himself. It's like, she's like, this is my story and I'm, and I'm sticking beside it. I also think this has to do with some insurance companies won't pay out for suicides. So she was making sure that that rumor, no one's investigating it. He ain't kill himself. It was an accident. So a week later, Barbara filed for the will, uh, which named herself as the sole recipient of everything. She also called the detective and told him that he needed to close the case. Like she's like, I needed this, I need this case closed so that she could get a death certificate and get the life insurance paid out. So Larry's family is super suspicious, as they should be. And once they saw the report that the gun residue test results showed that there was no gun residue on Larry's hands, they collectively decided that Barbara had killed Larry. So once the test results are back, it's com and our common knowledge, the family is able to convince the detective to dig up the body and get a fucking autopsy. So they exhume the body for an autopsy against Barbara's wishes. Barbara's like, you better, you better leave that body in the ground. And they're like, no, bitch, we're doing this. So the police had assumed, you know, based on Barbara's stories, that Larry had been playing with a new gun that he'd purchased, and it went off. Um, in his, in, in, you know, accidentally shot him. But the autopsy showed a downward trajectory of the bullet that went through to pierce his lungs. Downward trajectory would mean that someone had been standing over him and shot him. So they reclassify the death as a homicide with Barbara as the main suspect. However, unfortunately, 
ultimately there just wasn't enough evidence to arrest Barbara. Some other crazy crimes had happened in the town. There was another homicide that was completely unrelated that overshadowed this case. Um, so they didn't arrest Barbara. Uh, and she gets the death she gets the death certificates and she gets the insurance money. Almost one hundred thousand dollars in insurance money, which is a fuck ton of money in the 1970s. Well, once the insurance companies got wind of the death reclassification, they wanted another investigation. So they had been blowing up the police the police department, being like, hey, listen, we need you guys to, you know, reinvestigate a little bit. Well, around this time, the police department had a huge change of hands. There was a big shuffle up. They cleaned house, changed all the detectives out, and there was literally a new sheriff in town. And this new sheriff was like, bitch, I got a lot of shit on my plate. And he was tired of hearing the insurance companies blow up their phone. So he declared Larry's death an accident and closed the case. And this devastated Larry's fucking family. But uh, it got Barbara off the hook. So it is what it is. All right. So at this point, she has the life insurance money. But she is living with her parents while she does some house hunting. Because naturally... You know, she doesn't want to live in the house where her husband magically, you know, tragically, mysteriously died. So we have Barb. She's looking around for a new place uh, for her and her two sons to live. Um, It's giving house hunters, but true crime edition. Well, she finds a home she wants to check out, and the owner of the home is doing the showings, which is weird, but maybe not in the 70s, I don't know. And it's this cute guy named Russell Steger. Now, Barbara and Russell are the same age. She finds him handsome and attractive. So they exchange numbers. Uh, And apparently he is going through a divorce. Therefore, he's selling the home that he lived in with his ex-wife, whose name is Jo Lynn. Well, of course, Russell and Barb, you know, like I said, they hit it off. They start talking. And they begin to get the process of getting to know one another. Now, the similarities between Russell and Barb's dead ex-husband, Larry, were very eerie, to say the least. Russell was very active in his church. He was raised Christian. He was a jock-turned-gym coach who dreamed of working in a school. So Barb was all in. Now, just to give a little back info about this new character named Russell, he was tall and handsome and, like I said, was going through a divorce from his college sweetheart, Jo Lynn. I guess they had, like, a picture-perfect marriage until she found out he was cheating on her with a student at the high school, which, I mean, girl... I mean, I know it's the 70s, but girl. So Russell and JoLynn somehow managed to have an, an um, amicable breakup. And they remained close friends even through throughout and after the divorce. They didn't have any kids together. Well, with Russell being newly single, you know, and he's like the gym coach and like the, the football coach, he had all these groupies that would come to his football games uh, that he would coach. And leading that pack, was Barb. So Barb quickly became one of his Barbs and jumped on and was like, I am a fan. Well, Russell really appreciated this, you know, this attention she was giving him and like how tenacious she was and she was so dedicated. So they ended up dating. Now, while they're dating, Barb is working at another bank, (laughs) uh, but she ended up getting fired because her drawers kept coming up short. And they ended up making her make a payment plan to pay back all the money she had stolen to avoid them pressing charges. Meanwhile, Russell, her new boyfriend, has no idea how much of a hot-ass mess his new girlfriend is, but he is moving full steam ahead with, you know, this relationship with Barb. Now, Barb and Russell start planning a life together. They've got a good relationship. It's very sexual. They're very sexually compatible. Like, they have, like, a lot of sex, apparently. They're just, 
you know, very um, passionate. And what's interesting and to say this in the same sentence is, you know, he wanted a Christian woman who's very involved in the church, like, I guess, like a, a freak in the sh- streets, but, a, you know, a, what is it, a, a woman in the in the church, but a freak in the sheets, I guess. So he wanted her to be, you know, a woman that's very involved in the church. And Barb was like, I can be that. So she joins his church and she becomes a Sunday school teacher. Now, he expresses uh, his desire to start a family with her and to have kids of his own. And Barb is like, oh, yes, daddy, me too. Meanwhile, we already know her shit is tied up like an Auntie Anne's pretzel. Like, she has no intention of untying that fucking tube. So he doesn't know this. He's moving forward. Also, he was really amazing with her two sons. Like, they love Russell. So... He's like, I want to have more kids. We'll have a blended family. It's going to be like step by step, but better. But better. Well, a few months after Russell's divorce from Joe Lynn is finalized, and just a few weeks before the one-year anniversary of Larry's death, Russell and Barbara get married. Insert face palm emoji here because we already know that we already know the red flags. But anyways, now they have this really over-the-top honeymoon thanks to an additional $50,000 in insurance money that came thanks to Larry's untimely death. So she is still getting insurance money showing up, and they're using it to live their best life. Uh, It's important to mention that a lot like our couple from episode 20, Celia and Ed, Russell and Barbara have something in common. They cannot stop shopping, and they are terrible with their finances, both of them, just awful. So, of course, they bought a new home, They bought new cars. He had a sports car. Barbara had a car. And Barbara is taking out more and more loans on the side. She's maxing out more and more credit cards, just living very much like, I'm going to die tomorrow, so let me just fuck everything up today. Well, because Barbara was very thorough for the most part, outside of her finances, when it came to manipulating people, she was very thorough. She tried to cover all her bases. So shortly after the wedding, she announced, I'm pregnant. (laughs) No, we already know girl. However, a week later, she told everyone the bad news that she had miscarried. (laughs) Now, she continued to do this throughout their marriage, by the way. Like, this was like her thing. Like, I'm pregnant. I miscarried. Obviously, Russell is like heartbroken each time she does this, you know, but he loved her kids and he's just like, they're going to be my kids and we'll just figure it out. So by 1980, he legally adopted her sons and he changed their last names. Now, this was one of the final pieces of Barbara's plan to completely remove her kids from the dark past that was associated with their father. She had them; their last names changed, and she cut off all communication from Larry's parents and family. So they, she wouldn't even let them see their grandkids. Now, it's just very obvious that she is very determined to maintain control of this narrative and what her children know and how much information they have and just everything that's going on. Well, she couldn't control everything because around this time... They're having a pool party at their beach house, and one of Russell's relatives is looking at Barb in her bikini, and she notices that Barb has a scar in her stomach that was a very common scar for women who had gotten their tubes tied. So the relative tells Russell, like, bro, your wife had her tubes tied. I'm telling you, I have the same scar. And he just didn't want to believe it. So once again, she has a new man that is drowning in Denial River. Well, time goes on, and somehow Barbara ends up working at another bank. And she starts to get the same complaints about her being sexually explicit, wearing blouses that show off her titties, and eventually she starts having affairs again. Well, just like clockwork, she gets fired again and is unemployed. This is when one of Russell's friends, who they used to double date with, 
uh, said he would hire Barb to work at the radio station he works at to sell ads. He's like, she can sell ads. She'll be good. She seems to be very persuasive. Like, she'll do great at it. Well, she didn't sell shit. And the friend wanted to fire her, but it was too awkward. And he's just like, I don't know how to, like, fire her without ruining our friendship. Because, you know, I'm really good friends with Russ. And, like, we double date. Well, apparently God heard his prayer because he didn't have to fire her. She ended up quitting. She quit when she made this crazy announcement. She announced to everyone that she knew that she had sold a book that she's writing, that she was writing about her ex-husband death, ex-husband's death to a publisher, like a book about, you know, having a, a spouse that kills himself, you know, like a, you know, accidental death and how she got through the grieving process apparently. So she hadn't completed the book, but she started it, she pitched it to a publisher and the publisher gave her a $400,000 advance according to Barb. Well, listen, we know the real tea. What had happened was, in February of 1982, she had doctored and photo, basically photoshopped, before photoshopped, together a letter from a publisher, which uh, I listened to another podcast, and they were thinking that maybe she had, like, submitted her idea to a publisher, and they sent her a, a denial letter, and she used their letterhead and created this fake letter stating that, you know, they accepted her and that she's getting this $400,000 advance. She takes this letter to the bank, and the bank gives her a $100,000 fucking loan. Again, the audacity and just the privilege of being able to just be believed, no matter what you say. So after she was late for the very first loan payment, duh, because Barb, you know, we already know, Bob don't, Barb don't pay her bills. She was late for the very first payment. That's when the bank did what they should have done in the fucking first place, and they reach out to the publisher to verify that the advance was real, and, and like, do you know Barb? And the publisher was like, bitch, we don't know who the fuck she is. Like, who the fuck is Barb? Like, we don't know her. Well, months go on, and there's still no book. So her friends get to, get to talking shit behind her back. And they're like, yo, I bet this bitch is lying, and there's, like, no book at all. They also noted that Barbara didn't even own a typewriter or a word processor to actually write a book. So the friends start to call bullshit. So the friends try to set her up with a book release party, and she brushes them off. She's like, no, fuck that shit. So this is when one of the friends realizes, oh my God, I know someone who works for the publisher. So they contact that person and they ask them if they know who Barbara is. And they're like, I'm sorry to this woman. I don't know who this woman is. And my Kiki Palmer voice, they're like, we don't know who she is. So the friends are like, boom, bam, this bitch is fraudulent. So these friends are wives within their friend group. So the wives go home and tell their husbands and the husbands stage an intervention with Russell. So they take him out to, like, some restaurant, and they're, like, probably at CeCe's Pizza, and they're sitting there, and they tell him the truth about the book and the publisher and the $400,000 advance, all of it's bogus, and Russell is sitting there. He is shook. He's shell-shocked, but he says to his friend, well, at least she still has her job at, you know, the radio station, and that friend is like, bruh, she quit, like, almost a year ago. Like, she quit eight months ago. As soon as she announced this book, she quit. So for eight months, Barb had been getting up in the morning and, and pretending to go to work, but she just went off to do whatever or whoever she wanted to do during those hours when she was allegedly at work. So like I said, Russ is shook, but he starts, to put in, starts putting together these pieces, and he's just like, you know, I have seen her like talking to police officers sometimes, and she makes up these stories about why they're talking to her. Um, 
later on we find out it's because she was bouncing checks all over the city. And so the cops were pulling her in and like being like, bitch, we know about this. She was constantly going to court behind her husband's back and paying restitution so she didn't have to avoid so she could avoid going to jail and paying these fines for these bad checks she'd been writing all over the city. Well, this is when Russ starts to go through her shit and he finds a shoebox full of unpaid bills and realizes how far in debt they are. Which aren't we getting deja vu? Larry had the same revelation. So he talks to Barb about it, and Barb is just like, we're fucked. So Barb and Russell's parents have a meeting with them, almost like a financial intervention, and decide to help them pay their way out of their debt. So this is when they try to get another loan, Barb and um, Russ, uh, and they go to this bank, but the bank denies the loan, and the bank is like, it's because Barb worked here and she embezzled money. And Russ is like, what? So he's shook. They have to sell their beach house. They have to start selling cars and things that they have. And they're doing everything possible to get back on their feet. Well, during this stressful time, you would think, you know, Barbara would be dedicated to helping her new husband get the fuck out of this hole that she and, and he, that they both dug together. Oh, no. This is when Barb starts having another affair, but with a younger man. Russell even catches them making out in a car. He is so upset about this, but he doesn't divorce her. Doesn't divorce her. Which I just, I can't. I guess she knew how to pick them when it comes to, like, men that she knew she could manipulate. Well, years go by, and, you know, like I said, they're, they're still digging their way out of debt, living their life. Things aren't great, but Russ isn't divorcing her. They're going to figure it out. Well, by the fall of 1987, Russ, his ex, Joe Lynn, his ex-wife, who he's still friends with, you know, she had moved back to town. So he shows up at her at her house in tears, and he tells her everything about Barbara, like the affairs, the pregnancy hoaxes. Like, you know, he's like, okay, now I'm starting to believe that she really was faking these pregnancies and that my, you know, relative was right about her, her uh, tying her tubes. And he also tells her about the bad checks she's been writing, and he tells her about the book, and he's like, you know what, honestly, I'm starting to suspect that she did something, she had something to do with her ex-husband dying. Well, I mean, just like things go with Barb, it's a seesaw, so things got better for a few years, and then all of a sudden they got worse again, which is just her cycle. And at this point, um, Russ goes to JoLynn again, and this time he tells her, you know, talking about all, everything that Barb is taking him through, and this time he's like, I'm convinced that Barb killed her ex-husband. And he goes, you know what, if anything happens to me, I want you to make sure you look into it. If something bad happens to me, he's like, please look into it. So JoLynn is very concerned at this point. And she's just like, whoa, like my you know, ex-husband is telling me this. So in the back of her mind, she's kind of like, maybe he's being paranoid. I don't know. Well, a few months later, on February 1st, 1988, at 6.08 a.m., Barbara's preteen son, Jason, calls 911 and tells the dispatch that his stepfather had an accident with a gun so barb meets the paramedics at the front door and they rush up to the bedroom where russ is fighting for his life and he's bleeding out they get him to the hospital and the doctors see that a bullet entered the back of his head so he's on life support and the family is told that if he survives he's going to be brain dead so the decision to pull the plug is barbara's to make so you already know she was quick to have them just unplug it like pull the plug well, before he was even fully dead, like they pulled the plug, but before he had flatlined, Barbara had already gone home, like left the hospital and went to change clothes, and her parents had already gone to the house and taken the blood-soaked linens to wash them at their house. So they've already 
contaminated, cleaned up the crime scene. Well, when police questioned Barbara, her version of the story is, she said that Russ had bought a new gun and that he slept with the gun under his pillow because he was very concerned about burglars in the area. And so she says that she hears her son's alarm go off in their son's bedroom to wake him up for school. And for some reason, on this day in particular, she just was concerned that, you know, Russ is so paranoid with this gun, he's going to think that her son is an intruder. So that is when she reaches for the gun under his pillow to take it away, and it actually goes off, shooting Russell in the head, according to her. Now... Obviously, the detectives arrive to the scene of the crime scene and everything's cleaned up and perfect. So can we just, we're not even in the same county where she killed Larry. We're in a different county, but can we talk about how these fucking cops ruled it as an accidental death and said there will be no autopsy because it's another accidental death again? Like, I can't. So this is when... Russ's ex-wife, Jolyn, finds out about this shit, and she's like, oh, hell no. So she reaches out to the police, and she tells them everything Russ had been telling her over the years. She told them about, you know, the affairs. She told them about how Russ um, told her, if anything happens to me, look into it. She told them about how, you know, Russ knew his way around a gun and that he would never be dumb enough to sleep with one under his pillow. And then she tells them about Larry Ford's death. She's like, you need to look into her ex-husband's death. So... The cops are like, okay, interesting. So this time, before they bury the body, they decide to do an autopsy, but they do it without Barbara knowing. Now, the autopsy showed that a bullet entered the back of his head with a downward trajectory. So this didn't match Barbara's story. It's coming from down a downward trajectory. I'm getting deja vu again. This means someone shot him from standing up. So... The police go back over to Barb's house because they're like, now this bitch's shit is not adding up. So they ask her exactly what happened. And so this is when she gets on the bed and had the officer lay next to her pretending to be uh, Russell and she reenacts what happened. Now she's trying to, while she's doing this reenactment, she's all over the place. Like she keeps, you know, uh, backtracking like, oh, I did this. Never mind. No, I didn't do this. And it's all over the, it's very bizarre. So the cops are just like, what the fuck? By the way, there is actual video video footage of this that I'm going to be posting on the Instagram once this I post this episode. But anyways, well, they conclude this whole weird-ass reenactment thing with Barb. They leave, and an hour later, Barb goes to the courthouse to claim probate on Russell's estate, and she requests a shit ton of death certificates, which is indicative of you know her more than likely needing those for multiple life insurance policy payouts for Russell this time. Well, Larry Ford, the first husband, his family hears about Russell's death on the news, and they reach out to the police too. And they're just like, holy shit, like, we're one county away, we'll be there, we're going to give you all the details that we can, because this sounds just like the death of, you know, our family member, Larry, her ex-husband. Mind you, Larry's parents, they hadn't seen the grandkids in 10 years. So Barbara has completely moved them out of her life and away from those children. I, I really think she just thought they would never speak up again, but they do. So while the cops are getting the information from Larry's family about, you know, Larry's death and comparing that to the details of this murder... The cops reach out to Jo Lynn because she is very involved in this investigation. And she's fighting for answers. So they actually give her a box of old financial records that they took from Barbara and Russell's house to see if Jo Lynn can find anything suspicious or off in, in the box. And in that box, 
Jolyn notices a check written for $500 that was from Russell's bank account to be deposited in Barbara's just one month before his death. And Jolyn notices that the signature is not Russell's. Like She's like, this is not my ex-husband's signature. So this is a very common find because they're going through shit and they find a lot of Russell's signatures being forged by Barb on loans, on checks, and there were also more deposits that same week from Russell's account to Barbara's. Well, with this mountain of evidence, Barbara finally gets indicted and arrested. So she lawyers up. The media is going wild. The case is everywhere, all over TV. And this is when her son, Jason, the one that called the police or called the 911, he's in seventh grade at this time. And he writes a letter to an editor of a magazine who was reporting on the trial. And he says, you know, my mom was falsely accused and she's innocent. Um, and this is when the oldest son, who's in 19 years old, he's in college, he's questioned. And he said that, you know, my mom wouldn't have done that. Like both of my fathers, you know, they just happened to die in freak accidents. So Barb's family puts together the money and she gets out on bail. Now a year goes by before the case goes to trial and the county is pushing for the death penalty and everything is lined up and set for this trial. But two weeks before, a mini cassette tape is found in the locker room of the school where Russell worked. Now when he, when they cleared out his desk, they had already found a mini tape recorder so it was just like okay this is starting to make sense so they listened to the tape and it was recorded just three days before his death like he gives the date it was three days before his death and it's him saying that he thinks his wife is trying to kill him on this tape he said that three times that week his wife had woken him up to take pills to help him sleep but he was already sleeping so it didn't make any fucking sense so he didn't take them from her but on the final night uh, of the three, he did take them. He didn't swallow them, but he just took them from her. The next day, he took them to a pharmacist who said they were really strong sleeping pills. So on this recording, he also talked about Barb's money issues, how she forged checks, how he thought she killed her first husband. And if you think about this, she's giving him sleeping pills. Maybe it's because she wants him to be asleep when she kills him, right? Because the first husband his body was positioned as if he was trying to get out of the bed. So maybe there was a struggle. We don't know. So it looks like she was just trying to knock him the fuck out. Now, this evidence of this tape was admissible and was entered into discovery and ultimately played in court on August 30th, 1989. Now, the crazy thing is that Russell's family and friends, including his ex-wife, Jolynn, they're like, that is him. That is his fucking voice. However, Barbara's sons testified that the voice was not Russell's. So you have... <laughs> Uh, he said, she said. Now, when she went to court, Barbara was really just, she was committed to playing the role. She had softened her look again. She brought back the glasses. She dyed her hair brown and styled it very modest and dressed, you know, Sister Mary Clarence, you know, like she did before her hot years. Um, the prosecution presented evidence from both Barbara's husband's death, so they actually were able to present the evidence from Larry's death as well to show the similarities, to show the correlation, to show the downward bullet trajectories, to show that they were both considered, you know, these accidental deaths. So within 44 minutes, uh, the jury declared her guilty and in a second deliberation voted for the death penalty. Now, Barbara's family tried to appeal the ruling in 1991, but the courts didn't overrule the verdict. Her sentence, however, was overturned from death to life in prison 
during her resentencing in 1993, her son Jason, the one that was a preteen, he finally testified. Now, he hadn't testified in the original trial in 1989, you know, when they convicted her of first-degree murder and sentenced her to death. But now, during the resentencing, he was 19. He was 14 at the time of the first trial. He's 19 at the second trial. So they thought, if we get him to testify, this is going to help, you know, during this resentencing. It had the opposite effect. Jason talks about, you know, being 14 at the time of the shooting and how he was the only other person in the house on that morning. He said during this resentencing, I was taking a shower when I heard a popping noise. I thought it was a toilet lid dropping. I finished my shower and was just getting out when my mother came in and told me that dad had been hurt. She said I needed to call 911. Now on cross-examination, he explained further saying he'd been awakened by his alarm got a towel, then started his shower. So this term, this testimony makes no sense, because if you remember, Barbara told them that she heard her son's alarm and heard her son getting ready and then reached for the gun and it went off. Meanwhile, the son is saying he was in the shower already, had woken up to his alarm earlier, got up, got ready, got in the shower, and then heard the gunshot. So this was supposed to work in her favor, but it didn't, because it just meant that the math isn't mathing. So they resentenced her to life, and <clears throat> that is where she's remained. So Barbara has been denied parole four times and is currently serving time at the North Carolina Correctional Institution for Women in Raleigh, North Carolina. So she's not getting out, and um, that's really all she wrote. Uh, justice was finally found for um, you know these cra- these poor victims in this crazy ass story. Her husbands back to back it's just it's it's always interesting to me how when someone gets away with a crime you could tell when they're just out of their minds because it emboldens them to do more whereas you would think like getting away with it once you would just okay I got away with this I I I need to just go live a calm quiet life under the radar but then you have people like Barb who are just like if I did it once I could do it again I I I don't know. I think there's more severe um, issues that are at play here for Barb. Um, but um, yeah, guys, that is the that's the story on Barbara Steger. It's absolutely insane. If you want to hear a lot more details, there's a podcast I listened to during my researching for this show. Uh, I got a lot of my information from this podcast and I mean from Googling and a lot of articles out there, but Southern Fried True Crime is a really great podcast um, for just a super in-depth rundown of everything. Like you you guys know how I roll. I'm very much Cliff Notes, even though this is the longest episode we've done. Um, I am very much like, let's get to the point uh, of the story. But on Southern Southern Fried True Crime, the host is really great, and she will give you super, super, super detailed uh, information that was taken from a book that was written by, I believe it was one of the investigators, <clears throat> or one of the detectives on the crime, that gives just super specific details and to how crazy this story is, but... Thank you guys for tuning in. I appreciate you. And um, please make sure you're subscribed to the show on either Apple Podcasts or uh, Spotify. On Spotify, be sure to respond to those polls that I put in there. We also have a Patreon that you guys can join and support the show. We have an Instagram account, at bitchicantpod, where you can follow I, I post behind this, not behind the scenes, but um, I guess behind the story, looks at, thi- looks at things, looks at things, really? I, I post shit. 
that I call hashtag receipts, and you can see real pictures of the people involved in these crimes. I also post um, you know videos, whatever I can find, and I will be posting the video of Barbara trying to show what happened in that bed because it is a very bizarre video. I'll be posting that, but. Thank you guys for tuning in. Until next Monday, um, I will talk to you uh, with a long story. You will get a short little mini episode on Thursday. So yeah, guys, have a good night and we will talk. Bye.